Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. It's a year since the NDP government came to power, and today we're going to talk to three leaders of those parties as involved in the delicate mix in the legislature. The opposition leader, Andrew Wilkinson, will join us. The alliance partner of the NDP, Andrew Weaver, the Green Party leader, will join us. And Selena Robinson, the housing minister, will speak on behalf of the government. Well, this week, our next guest marks the one-year anniversary of being sworn into provincial cabinet. And it's been an eventful year for the BCNDP as they've navigated hot issues like the housing market and the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And joining us today to offer her perspectives on the government's past year in office, it is the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, Selena Robinson. Minister, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Totally quiet uh, file, that housing file. Yeah, not, nothing it? much to talk about there. <laughs> you've, uh, you've had an idle, yeah. idle year, haven't you? Been kind of, <laughs> oh, what? you guys are too funny. Are, no. You're way too funny. <laughs> no, no, no. Let's, let's get serious about it. it, it what, what have been the principal challenges in, in getting up to total speed on this and knowing that the public expectation is almost off the charts on housing? Well, uh, we know that, that people have really been struggling uh, when uh, when Don Horgan asked me to take on this file, um, I, I knew um, what what the challenges were. Um, this housing crisis didn't manifest overnight. It's been coming for some time, um, and watched it from the sidelines. And certainly, I, I come from local government and saw it, you know, uh, really manifesting back in 2010, 2011, 2012. Where we're really starting to see it even then. Is there something like a generalized strategy that you wanted to undertake, and that the the, the government wanted to undertake around the specific issues, say, in Metro Vancouver? Well, we knew we needed to take a, a multi-pronged approach. And I know that there's lots of debate about whether it's supply or whether it's demand. And and our, our position and in, in the work that I've done with Carol James as Minister of Finance is that it's a multi-pronged approach, which is why we put together our 30-point plan, recognizing that there's many different places where we need to uh, make some changes in order to address what has been, you know, a, a significant challenge, not just in the Lower Mainland. It's I, what surprised me, in terms of my early learnings, was that it's affecting um, all parts of British Columbia, and even even uh, some rural communities are really struggling with housing affordability. Mm-hmm. Well, if we go back to the municipal level, I am curious about your own experience as a city councillor and looking at. I, I would say there's sometimes a lot of nimbyism when it comes to maybe densification, and and there are some challenges with regards to getting zoning going on on the municipal level. Do you think that the municipalities need to step up to a certain degree, be willing to make a lot of changes, and will the government be willing to, I don't know, put the pressure valve on them to a certain degree as well? Well, this housing crisis is something that we all need to be working on. It's not just the purview of the provincial government or local governments that we need to be working together, which is why, you know, one of the, you know, what we did this last spring was we brought in rental only zoning, um, which is what some of the local governments had been asking for directly as another tool that will help them protect some of the affordable, you know, some of the rental stock, because we all know that affordable, that rental hasn't been built for 40 years uh, in this province. And that's certainly contributed to it. So looking for a number of tools uh, to um, to make that happen, and certainly, you know, local governments um, have been, you know, asking for some help uh, in terms of making sure that they have uh, the tools that they need to make uh, housing uh, 
the right kind of housing more available. And the other thing that I learned when I was on council was, um, you know, we knew that the Evergreen Line was coming when I was there. It's since arrived and it's, it's excellent. It's fabulous to have it. But we were approving, um, you know, hundreds of units of um, housing of, of, you know, towers. And, but they were all 600 square foot units. Right. And I remember asking the developers, why, do, why are they only 600 square foot units? Like, where are people going to downsize to? People who have, have you know, ready to, to shift from single family. And where are families going to, you know, live? And they kept saying, it's well, the market demands it. And what we've since learned in Coquitlam, I can certainly say, you either live in a 3,000 or larger square foot home or a 600 square foot apartment. Those are the choices. Yeah. And missing, we're missing uh, an important middle middle uh, middle range housing tell me you've had a year now to to examine all of this uh, in a inside uh, government uh, can you talk about how it is that you personally wanted to try to in a way reset public expectations about how swiftly governments can move on this you talk about a 40 year plan you know 40 years of not building rental housing uh, you know the a problem taking a long time to get out, you know, to get out of the ditch on in a certain way. What about you and what you've tried to do in terms of being rational about expectations for the public? Um, I think, I think when I, when I, well, when I talk with people and I explain to them what we've been doing, first of all, they're, they're, um, surprised at how quickly we have been moving on a variety of steps. Um, everything from, you know, the rapid response to homelessness and the shelter supports, uh, the, the homes, the supportive housing that we've been doing um, that addresses homelessness, as well as, you know, getting in rental zone, rental only zoning um, r- relatively quickly. And I, and people appreciate that it, it, does take time to see some changes, but we've also been working um, with the Residential Tenancy Act and making sure that tenants and landlords have an opportunity to um, have a, a better working relationship um, so that we can uh, get some fairness um, in that system as well. So while we're looking at um, bringing um, some of the supply issues online, which will take some time, we're doing uh, lots of uh, things in between to make sure that the system works better for people. Because at the end of the day, this is really about making life better for people um, and the people who live and work here um, and make a life here and raise their families here and grow old here. They want to have a decent life and, and everything that we're doing is about working towards that. And people understand that. Just recently, you signed an agreement with Ottawa. It's nearly $1 billion worth. It's going to get about 34,000 units preserved here in British Columbia for affordable housing. But the government's also promised a total of 114,000 units. I'm wondering how you work at bridging the gap here that still exists, even though you guys are making progress right now. Well, we, we, we recognize from the get-go that uh, this is not, uh, the, this housing crisis is not something that um, any one government or level of government can, can tackle on its own. So we need to have three levels of government and First Nation working together in order to deliver on uh, the significant housing gap that we have and the, the, the diversity of housing needs that we have that we, we have before us. So part of what we've been doing is reaching out, and I've been spending a good part of the year reaching out to various um, partner opportunities. Uh, so every everyone from the private sector, the, uh, the Home Builders Association, the Urban Development Institute, individual developers, um, and, um, and, and the faith community. And I want to just 
speak a moment for, about the faith community and the opportunities that are there. Um, we've already launched um, the Housing Hub, which is a, a new branch that we've started of BC Housing, whose sole task it is to identify uh, partners who uh, will work with us um, and all other potential partners to deliver on some of that, what we call missing middle housing, where it doesn't need government subsidy necessarily, but there's opportunity to um, deliver on affordable housing for that for people who have middle income ranges who can't get stable rental or can't get into the market um, and so need a little bit of a creative solutions. And so um, we've been do doing that work and we've made announcements already with 400 units of, a, of affordable rental for targeted to, to families making between 50 and 85,000 a year. We could probably talk for hours about the we housing could. issue. <laughs> I'm sure you, I'm sure you do every day. Uh, <laughs> that being said, uh, I wanted to ask one last question about housing before we uh, get to some other topics. And it has to do, of course, with, uh, with the two taxes uh, that I think have raised a great deal of publicity, the one being the speculation tax, the second one being the tax uh, called a school tax. And I wonder whether you can, after a year, again, assess these and say, these are in, in my portfolio and in the time that I've had these taxes to examine, that there have been some un unintended consequences. These haven't gone as smoothly as we wished. Well, they haven't been implemented yet. Yeah. So, yeah. so I mean... But the reaction's you know. been pretty, pretty strong. So, yeah. so the, the, the reaction is, uh, is strong, but they have been implemented. And so um, I know that uh, in my conversations with Carol James, we, you know, we have a, a plan to, you know, monitor very closely how the, once they're implemented, you know, what are the impacts monitoring um, everything from housing starts to housing prices and uh, keeping an eye on it. And, 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 you know, people appreciate that um, we, you know, we we need to address uh, um, the the curve of of housing costs that were going up into they, they were stratospheric, mm -hmm. and people were begging for some intervention that would lower that lower that curve, bring it to something a little bit more sane, um, and that's and that's what these um, interventions are about. Mm -hmm. Now, if we just transfer to maybe the, the next most divisive thing in, in politics here, why don't we talk a little bit about the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion that created a, a big split, a big divide between a lot of British Columbians here. How do you feel? How would you grade the government's performance on this where we see a lot of pushback from both sides with regards to this topic here? We're doing what we said we would do. We would use every tool in our toolkit in order to address um, a particularly challenging project. Um, and uh, um, making sure that we protect our coast has been the most critical thing. And, and you know, hearing from um, the number of people who have, whose, whose livelihoods uh, depend on having a, a, a clean coastline, uh, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of families that rely on um, the industry of having a, a clean coastline coastline, whether it's fisheries and uh, tourism, um, there, that, that is, um, we have to protect that. And that's what this has been about. Yeah. I, we have to point toward the, the next year as well and talk about the, uh, you know, the, the, the impending referendum around proportional representation. And, and I have to say, when I talk about PR with, with other people, they, they say, I don't understand why why does the NDP government want PR? Here it is on the cusp of having a majority potentially in the next election. Mm -hmm. uh, why, why undo what you're about to get? Well, what, what we want to have is fair elections. Um, and it's so while some might think it's about 
you know, power. Um, and I do believe we have, you know, great ideas that we want to implement and that we, we, we want to deliver for British Columbians and we are delivering for British Columbians. We also want a fair democracy. Um, and I, and I, when people, you know, uh, struggle with, uh, with PR and the, the notion of PR, I talk about my experience again on local government where, you know, you get, um, a number of people around a table, there's nine of us, and I have to convince four other people to work with me on an idea, and then we can get something to happen. And so it forces me to do my homework, it forces me to make sure I have the support that I need. And uh, rather than having these huge swings back and forth, we actually get, I think, really good decisions when you um, when you have a PR system, uh, because it forces people to work together. And I think, you know, the the, the the current experience uh, of working with the Greens um, has been very positive. Um, the, the relationship we have with with the Greens is is excellent. Uh, we talk about good ideas. They have good ideas. Um, and so there's opportunity for us to do good things on behalf of British Columbians. And that's what I really like about PR. Mm. Forces us as elected officials to work together on behalf of British Columbians rather than to work against each other just because I have to. Yeah. Well, Minister, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Great. Thank you for having me. That's Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, Selena Robinson. July 18th marks one year since the BC NDP was sworn into office. And from pipeline politics to perpetual questions hanging out over the housing markets, it's been a very memorable year, I'd say that, for British Columbia. And our guest, he's had an up-close view of it all from the opposition benches. Joining us today to offer his perspectives on the current government, it is BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. Andrew, thanks for joining us on the show today. Great. Good to be here. So tell us, it's been a pretty memorable year, and I think one of the things that's going to stick out to a lot of people is maybe the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion Project. We, we've seen our relationship with Alberta wasn't going so well right now, and we've even had Ottawa come out and nationalize this pipeline. I want to know, I mean, let's say your positions were reversed, you were in the Premier's office, how would you have handled the situation as we've seen it unfold over the last six, seven months? Well, the upshot today is that we as federal taxpayers have bought a $4.5 billion pipeline that we don't know how to operate, and we're about to bar embark on a $7 billion expansion project that we don't know how to build. And all of this is because of John Horgan's pigheadedness, and what we have in return is a lawsuit that's going nowhere. So this is a bad outcome for British Columbia. It could have readily been managed much better if the NDP had not been so ideological and as I say, pig-headed in their approach to uh, construction in this province. Was there um, an, an earlier opportunity, do you think, for the federal government to at least apprehend what John Horgan was going to be about with this project and and perhaps bring through uh, the system uh, once your government was defeated last year, uh, some of the, uh, you know, kind of break the impasse at a legal and even a constitutional sense? Well, the federal government had a number of choices, and they were fairly late to the game with their decisive approach. Uh, throughout, I give them credit for being consistently supportive of the concept, but their execution of it could have been better and earlier. And it's interesting to note that the vast majority of the First Nations along the route were supportive of the project, and yet at the same time, uh, the federal government hung back and decided at the last minute to buy the project out as a, a way to solve the problem. 
Is there some irony that perhaps you and your government, if it was uh, consisting through this uh, current term here, it would have been more on board with the provincial government, the NDP government and Alberta with regards to this issue? There would have been a lot more congruity going forward. Well, I think that's a political anomaly in that NDP governments in most places favor public sector employment over private sector employment. And we're seeing that in British Columbia, where we've had a net loss of 40,000 private sector jobs in the last 12 months and a positive growth of 20,000 public sector jobs. And of course, we can't all work for the government. And so the concern we have is that we need that private sector employment and capital investment in British Columbia, and we're seeing it disappear. And I suppose it's interesting that in Alberta, the NDP have had to come to their senses and realize they do have to encourage the private sector, but that's not the case in British Columbia. In this case here, of course, you've got uh, an alliance between two parties that uh, that then outnumber the Liberals in the legislature. I want to get your appraisal of, um, of how their covenant has uh, worked out, where you think it actually might have succeeded in some respects, but also where you think the uh, the deficiencies have been. Well, the NDP have succeeded in co-opting the Greens to vote for them, and the Greens, uh, as everyone has noted, vote 100% for the NDP program, even though they complain about it and make noise. So at the end of the day, we have a Green Party that really stands for nothing other than staying in power, and their sole goal is to get their proportional representation uh, program passed so that they can guarantee themselves jobs for life in the legislature. This is not in the public interest. Uh, the Greens talk about collaborative government, and they've been anything but. They've been very uh, difficult for us to get along with and openly saying offensive things about my party. So they're not living up to their promises or their principles, and they are basically been co-opted by the NDP completely. Well, on the topic of proportional representation, it seems as if you talk to one person in the street, they say that it's guaranteed to be in the bag pro PR. You talk to another person on the street and they say, no, there, there's no way this will ever come to pass. There, there's a lot of mixed messages that we're seeing here. What are your concerns about having proportional representation, at least the way that it's being outlined here in British Columbia, going forward in this province? There are many, many concerns, but it starts with voter apathy and indifference and gets to the next stage of voter uh, lack of information and in that most people have no idea what's being talked about. They'll be sent a mail-in ballot, and there'll be very low participation in that process because people won't uh, take the time or bother to fill out the ballot. And when they do see the ballot, it's very, very confusing to fill it out. So there are going to be lots of spoiled ballots, and we see this as a fundamentally undemocratic exercise. We know who wants this. It's the Green Party. They're the ones who initiated the idea. They're the ones who will benefit from it. And, of course, the concern is that this is going to... Uh, involve very few people in terms of a fully informed voting public. And with a low voter turnout, the NDP have decided that 50% plus one uh, vote in favor of, that it must be implemented regardless of the low turnout. What will be your principal uh, messages in the campaign that lay ahead here around PR? The concern is lack of representation. You know, I just came back from Cornell, Vanderhoof and Prince George, and the people in Quinell and Vanderhoof realize that their representation will basically disappear. They will be subsumed into a much larger riding, which could encompass the northern half of British Columbia geographically, which has only about 300,000 people in it. And so they will lose any contact with their local representative, and it matters a great deal there because the areas are so huge. In the lower mainland, it's the opposite problem that... Uh, here in the city of Vancouver, East Vancouver could be one huge riding, and people will have that sense of loss of who their representative is. 
once you get past that, you get to the issue of uh, MLAs being chosen off party lists by the party bosses. Mm-hmm. This is not a voter engagement exercise. This is a party engagement exercise. And the beneficiaries are political parties and the party bosses become all powerful. If it wins, does your own party face the challenge of perhaps being disrupted and with perhaps a, the, you know, a, a, the rise of a, a BC conservative party again? Well, there's no doubt that there will be a proliferation of parties in British Columbia if FPR goes through along religious, ethnic, and geographic lines, and that is not going to be good for British Columbia. We'll get special interest parties that favor their own interests, as we've seen all around the world when PR comes into place. And if they get into a position of controlling the balance of power, then their one particular interest will be uh, put forward and advanced, whether it's abolishing a particular tax or giving them something for free. That's not good. And so far in our caucus, we have an extraordinarily high level of unity, even though we are a very big tent politically. We have Mm -hmm. a wide range of opinions, and all of the people in our caucus are firmly behind the party going forward with or without PR. So you don't worry that there could be a splintering of your own party? I think the people in our party have realized that the vehicle to success is sticking together, and they realize that uh, messy coalition governments decided by backroom bosses is not the way to go. So I'm less concerned about our own parties uh, splintering than I am about the proliferation of special interest parties. Uh, speaking of that proliferation, I, I have to believe that if it came to pass, we, we definitely get a resurgence of the uh, the marijuana party that always uh, makes an appearance on ballots uh, across the Well, their office. timing is, is perhaps going to be pretty good in this case exactly. because you've got the introduction of it. And, and I am curious uh, from your perspective, Mr. Wilkinson, with the cannabis uh, coming into uh, effect with regards to the legal recreational market as of October 17th, where are we right now with this hybrid model that's being introduced to British Columbia with both the private retailers as well as the public sector that's going to be involved? Well, we've been very clear throughout that we think that marijuana legalization leads to a number of questions at the local level. And first of all, there has to be a very strict regime to prevent sales to children. It's going to make its way out to children, but we shouldn't have the state endorsing or permitting that. Secondly, the people involved in marijuana retail sales have to be closely scrutinized to make sure we're not just legalizing organized crime. And the third thing is that municipalities have to be able to choose whether or not they want to be in their community. And Richmond has been very clear that they want no marijuana retail sales in their community. And lastly, uh, the idea of having a state-run cannabis store opening right next to a state-run liquor store is just creating union jobs. And we don't think the role of the state is in that. We should have private sector retail sales that are closely regulated and policed. Speaking of uh, of Union jobs, of course, the premier has announced this week uh, that infrastructure projects are going to be tied into the BC Building Trades Union, and uh, that has, uh, of course, got the contractors uh, very, very worried about what their futures are like. Uh, were you surprised to see this coming? Uh, not particularly. This is the NDP showing their true colors, and you have to remember that since 2005, they've received more than $20 million in uh, political donations from these uh, unions and what they've done is turn around and pay them off. I mean, this is a shameful exercise of political power to pay off donors. And it's done directly. It's not even done by saying uh, that government will contract with employers who will then hire union labor. It's done by saying government will create the hiring hall company and pick the workers from their favored unions. I mean, this is one step short of flat out corruption. And so it's really sad to see that the NDP have gone back to their worst instincts that they had in the 1990s, and they've done it so quickly. 
this is an aggressive move by the building trade unions to uh, line their pockets. And you got to remember that, as it's noted in the Vancouver Sun today, the workers themselves can make the same or more in a non-union environment as they do in a union environment. The differential of the extra cost goes into the pockets of the unions, not the workers. Well, I don't think it would be an episode if we did not bring up the housing market here in British Columbia. We've had the new government over the last year. We've seen them introduce a so-called speculation tax. I, I often use speculation in uh, quotation marks when I'm talking about it. How about schools? Put, put that one in yeah, well, quotations that's too. Another one, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We've also seen an increase in the foreign buyers tax. I'm curious, what would you like to see the government doing to address this affordability crisis that is, is really hitting more and more people across the province, especially as the population gets older and we see more young people get into the buying market? Well, I was just looking on Google Maps this morning because I'm going to Coquitlam and noting that around this uh, Cantaline stations, the Evergreen Line stations, there are enormous parking lots in all directions. And we think, there's no shortage of buildable land in the lower mainland. What we have is a lack of will and a lack of supply of construction land to get on with building the housing that's needed. British population goes up by about 60,000 people every year, and it has done for the last 30 years, except in the late 90s when people left because of the NDP. And so if you look at the idea of a million more people coming to the lower mainland, where are they going to live? And the answer is we've got to build a whole lot more housing. We have to get on with it and anticipate it and build transit that matches that housing supply. We have the available land where there's a will, there's a way. And let's uh, convert parking lots into livable spaces. How would you assess the performance of the NDP government in terms of the own, its own measures here on housing and housing affordability in the months since it's taken power? Well, one year ago, we heard they were going to build 114,000 housing units. That got boiled down to 1,700 rental units. So it's going to take them 67 years to satisfy that promise. We're seeing basically nothing happening on the housing front in terms of supply. What we're seeing is onerous taxation dressed up in fake names like a school tax that has nothing to do with schools. And this is supposed to solve the housing problem. In fact, what we're seeing is a huge slowdown at the upper end of the housing market. We're hearing numerous contractors all over the province that they are delaying or stopping projects and we're starting to see some unemployment appear in the construction trades. So this is not the way to solve the housing crisis by destroying demand and putting people out of work. The way to solve it is by employing those people to build more housing. Yeah. You, of course, uh, assumed the leadership of the party uh, throughout the, the last year and um, I want to get your own sense of uh, what the job feels like as a fit and um, and what you've set out as priorities for your party because even though you you won the the election in a in a sense of the vote you you don't hold power and and uh, there must be some reconsideration of where the party has to go in order to regain power would share some thoughts on this well, it's been a great experience uh, taking on leadership of this party because the uh, competitors for leadership have come on board fully and are strongly supportive of my leadership. We've got a very united party, We've got a strong caucus, and in the communities that I've been visiting all over BC, there's a huge amount of enthusiasm for moving ahead as a party and dealing with the NDP and winning the next general election. So that's in great shape. We've also had excellent reception from uh, widespread communities, whether it's the childcare workers and operators who are very fed up with the NDP plan or in terms of small business. Um, those folks are very keen to support us and move forward as a united um, effort in British Columbia. So it's going very, very well. The challenge, of course, is 
getting the word out and getting out to meet 4.8 million people in this great big province. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing every day. It, and yet uh, there are some vestiges of uh, of time and power now that uh, appear to have a great deal of publicity attached to them. Of course, uh, you know, singularly the recent Peter German report on money laundering, uh, some of the uh, publicity attended to ICBC, BC Hydro, and so on. Uh, in a lot of ways, have do you feel like you've got to um, reclaim the party's place or or rework some of its principles in order to then successfully move forward? Well, we fully expect the NDP to be trashing us as much as they can for 16 years of solid economic growth and prosperity in this province. And in the meantime, in 12 months, they've managed to slow down the economy and destroy 40,000 private sector jobs. But that's to be anticipated. What we have to do is put out that forward-looking vision for British Columbia, and we're developing that right now. And we'll continue to do that through our convention in the fall to be ready for the next general election. Yeah. Do you, I've heard from both NDP and Liberals that they do expect an election sooner than 2021. What's your anticipation? Well, there's an interesting uh, dilemma coming up this fall with LNG Canada yeah. appearing to be interested in proceeding with the uh, gas pipeline across northern BC and the LNG terminal in Kitimat. And we'll see what happens with the NDP Green Coalition and whether the Green actually do have any principles at all, because they have said that they would oppose it, but they've been slavishly voting with the NDP 100% of the time for the last year, and we'll see if they actually have any backbone this fall. Well, we'll be keeping in touch with you in the meantime. And uh, Andrew, I want to thank you for joining us on the program today. Well, thanks for your time. Good to speak with you. That's BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. It was only a year ago that our next guest was playing a kingmaker of sorts. He was deciding whether to align with the BC Liberals or the BC NDP. Could have been a queenmaker. Could have been a queenmaker. That's very true. I I, I should uh, clarify that. And Well, Andrew Weaver, he's a leader of the Green Party, is going to decide whether to prop up the governments in the wake of last spring's provincial election. And he opted for the BC NDP, putting them in power for the first time in 16 years. And he joins us today to discuss the past year in the legislature. Andrew, thanks for joining us on the show. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been very, very candid uh, throughout your time as, as the leader. And, and you were, during the campaign, uh, critical of the party that you eventually uh, connected with. Um what have you seen eye to eye on in the first year, and and largely where where are the where are the gaps there too? So the, you know what we were committed to was uh, reforming our democracy through things like banning big money, getting that out. We've done that uh, lobbying registration. We've done that. You'll see some more of that in the fall. We've been working on that to try to get the influence of of big players out of the decision making process in BC. Uh, that's one of the successes we've had. We've also had a success in the development of a plan to actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, that plan is forthcoming. Uh, we're working with it, um, you know, on an ongoing basis. We've had success on uh, professional reliance examination of the way that was done. Uh, that's been supported both by uh, uh, industry as well as the, the you know, associations involved. There was a recognition that perhaps the pendulum has swung too far. So we've got some success there. Some success in terms of the social program 
programs that we recognized uh, had been left left aside for quite some time. Uh, and there's been some measures done in terms of housing affordability. Uh, but that also leads to some of the some of the issues. The uh, the other side of the question is some of the uh, shortcomings. Well, we're we're still we're somewhat troubled by the fact that we're still uh, a year later. Um, talking about uh, ride hailing at some point in the distant future. I mean, we need to get moving on that. And, um, you know, we're, we're not terribly enthralled with the way the BCNDP have brought in the speculation tax. It seems to be targeting. Um, it, it's not dealing with speculation. It's more dealing with uh, paper wealth. And uh, mm-hmm. though we're still struggling with that. And then, of course, there's the monkey in the room or the elephant in the room, which is LNG. Yeah, let's maybe we can talk about that right away because the, that appears to be maybe a, a bit of a um, maybe a nexus for your relationship uh, eventually. Where what's your hill to die on here? So there's no question that um, you know I got into politics in 2013 or well, 2012. I decided I was going to run. Now, the singularly because I could not stand by as a climate scientist who worked very closely with the uh, BC Liberal government under Gordon Campbell to develop a strategy to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I could not stand by and watch that be dismantled by the then Premier Christie Clark government. So for me, this is. Uh, the reason that got me in and and it's important and i i i have said and be very clear that you know show us a plan that allows you to add four to eight megatons the single largest point source of greenhouse gas emissions in canadian history and somehow reduce emissions by 40 percent by 2030. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is a, a grand challenge. So we want to see a plan that can do that. Otherwise, you know, this is yet another example of politicians standing up and say, saying one thing and doing another, and, and we, we won't uh, take that very well. But can that math work? I don't see how it can. I've been told it can. Show me how it can. Um, you know, I... I I don't think it's fair um, to for one company to come in, uh, take up eight megatons, essentially the stock of all emissions, and 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 that would translate to everyone else in the province going to you know close to zero over the next few decades, mm. including the shutting down of industry that already exists. I don't think that's fair, uh, and uh, I think we have incredible opportunities for innovation here. You start you see that in this one of the successes I forgot to mention is the, the BCNDP have adopted much of our economic agenda, which was to focus on innovation. Uh, you've seen the rolling out of the Emerging Economy Task Force. You've seen the rolling out of the Innovation Commission and Innovate BC. And you're starting to see the work that work come to fruition. We've seen announcements, major announcements on um, super super cluster in NBC uh, Amazon's coming in and, and we're starting to see you know the recognition that you know, if we want to compete if we want to compete globally, we won't compete just by digging dirt out of the ground because we internalize social and environmental externalities here in British Columbia that other jurisdictions do. So mm-hmm. to compete, we must be smarter, more efficient, cleaner, and so that we can export not only our resources, but the value added as well as the technology and knowledge and innovation that got them out of the ground in the first place. Well, what if we reach year's end and final investment decisions are made with regards to the LNG industry and the government is moving forward on that? Where does that leave the BC NDP or I should say the BC Greens at this point, especially since you guys have been pushing very hard with regards to proportional representation and the timelines aren't exactly going to match up there? Well, I come back to why I got into politics. I mean, there is a a, 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 there's a whole bunch of pundits out there who seem to um, have spent a lot of time, you know, looking at politics. And and I would, in some sense, argue somewhat simply, uh, I didn't get into politics for proportional representation. 
action. I got in, as I said earlier, because for me, I could not stand by, as a climate scientist, I could not stand by, step aside from a career right at its pinnacle, take a 50% salary cut just for professional representation. I got into politics because I could not see, uh, I could not watch it. We, we in British Columbia have such potential for innovation to lead the world in terms of, you know, the, the decarbonization of, of our economy. And we have everything that you need to do. We've got wind, we've got geothermal, we've got smart people. We've got the most beautiful place in the world to live. So we know we can be leaders. So so to me, it's 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 not about prop rep. I, it's, it's not even my file. But with that said, I will say that there's two checkpoints here. LNG Canada can make whatever recommendation they want. What's, there were five major stakeholders um, internationally involved in the, pet, uh, pet, uh, the LNG Canada deal. We've told LNG Canada straight to their face, we do not support the generational sellout embodied in what's going on here. You know, people don't realize that we're not going to make money from this. We've basically given the resource away. The BC Liberals on April the 1st, 2014, extended the so-called deep well credits to basically every well in the province. We used to get $30 and change as uh, uh, royalties for 1,000 cubic meters of natural gas. Now we're under three. We, the BC Liberals in giving away the, uh, the essential upstream uh, royalties added in an LNG income tax regime to hopefully earn money down the road when, when gas was produced. LNG, the NDP have said, you know, we're going to double down on that. We're going to exempt them from the LNG income tax. We're going to exempt the PSD. That we're going to, we're literally going to build Site C and produce electricity at twelve to fifteen cents a kilowatt hour to sell it to them for under five. I mean, this is madness in terms of uh, it's a, it's a it's a corporate welfare on steroids that takes what the BC Liberals have done to a whole new level. So no, we're not going to stand by and support any measure of that that comes to the legislature. And uh, because it's inconsistent with good fiscal management, number one, and two, that reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. So are you saying that, that perhaps a larger share of the legislature, which is certainly, if you had to take a little less uh, election results, mm -hmm. uh, the Greens would have had under a new uh, system of PR, are you saying you're prepared to forego that if the if the LNG decision is not the way you you want? I have always said. Well, first of all, there's no. It's not about LNG decisions that we want or don't want. Companies can make whatever decisions they want to do. Um, where what we are judged to do, what we our role is, is to to determine what the government is doing in terms right. of giveaway. But it, but it's not. final investment so, decision. For instance, if it doesn't go the way that you wish. Well, you know, a final investment decision by LNG Canada is different from a final investment decision internationally. Um, we we will be very, very troubled if uh, if a climate plan comes out that is not going to take us to 40% reductions and there is a government's cheerleading an LNG final investment decision. It uh, is not something that uh, I feel very comfortable with. Uh, again, uh, to me, it's not about the, it's the decision we make on that and down the road is independent of any prop rep uh, referendum. Uh, the referendum is, is, you know, I guess it's October 22nd. It's, that's around the time of a final investment decision. So, you know, mm -hmm. we've got other issues that we disagree with. The speculation tax, for example. I'd be quite clear on that. This is not a speculation tax, so this is going to hurt some local economies without actually dealing with the issue, which is the issue of affordability. You know, if we want more efficiency of use of our housing stock, what we should be talking about 
is uh, you know stratas that have no rental clauses, and 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 then saying whether that is correct and whether we should empower strata councils, the power of eviction, but at the same time allow for more rentals. These are the type of things we should be talking about, not some hypothetical tax on somebody who you know may may be working in two jurisdictions and has a second condo in Vancouver. Yeah. Well, going forward, though, with regards to the proportional representation talk, a lot of British Columbians, they, they're looking at what the proposals are. And I have to say, many of them don't mm-hmm. understand how these systems work. Is this a concern for you going forward? Well, it's still early. It's the summer. Like, you know, it's and and, and the, the key thing is there is a question you want to change or not. And, and for, for many, this is inside baseball. What they care about is voting for who they want in representation locally. You know, there's been so much disinformation and misinformation out there. You know, I, I heard the interview you did with the uh, leader of the official opposition uh, arguing that this is bad for rural BC. It's quite the opposite. Right now, rural BC has almost no representation in government. Uh, prior to that, it had almost no representation in opposition. It's not healthy for an entire large area of our province to have no representation in government or no representation in, in opposition. Proportional representation would actually allow for representation in both sides, which is, which is healthy so that issues get debated and not um, uh, wiped uh, under the table. Yeah. You know, th- there's been all this talk about uh, fringe parties, you know, let's let's suppose you you know people talking. Oh, the Nazis are coming! Outrageous kind of statements in the legislature. Well, you know, if there's a if there's a Nazi party, you've got a problem with Nazis. You don't have a problem with the party. Uh, and if you and and and, and this is the type of um, you know the examples, crazy examples that are brought up. They're 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 not dealing with the issue. The issue is about ensuring. Of fairness in our electoral system uh, that uh, uh, it may seem complicated, but the information hasn't been set out. Do you have in mind uh, yet? Because one of the criticisms, of course, that Andrew Wilkinson leveled about this is that the idea that there'll be some people in the legislature who will be, I think the way you put it was picked by party bosses. Mm-hmm. As opposed to something that would uh, would approach a, uh, someone who had either run for office and been unsuccessful, or or you know been in a in a, a jurisdiction proximate to the one that might be represented, anything like that. Do you already have in, in your own mind a, a, a bit of a vision on on how it is that you would get um, new MLAs into the legislature in the system that would come closer to meeting that test of of relevance to someone in, in a community? Well, uh, the only uh, closed list MMP, uh, member proportional, is the one system that would allow for people to elect on party lists. I, I'm with Mr. Wilkinson. If I'm given a choice, my choice is to have open lists. Yeah, okay. uh, so when I look at this, I look at the three systems that are there, I realize that it's only but one uh, that, so I probably personally wouldn't vote for that one. The other systems are all about electing everybody. So so again, yeah. you know, Mr. Wilkinson is, is he, it's clear the BC Liberals are, 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 are they right now are struggling. They don't know what they stand for. There's we, scandals are just beginning to emerge. Who knows what direction it's going to head? But, but you know, we've got we haven't seen hide nor hair of, of Mr. Coleman or, or Mr. De Young. In uh, you know, we haven't hardly seen Mr. Wilkinson. And 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 uh, so I, I I think the BC Liberals are really um, struggling because they worry that their so-called coalition is not going to hang around for long, despite the fact they'll deny that. Yeah, well, if you heard the interview, I mean, he was very clear. He thought he had the the party entirely behind him. But am I? Am I, I, I think I... that's. <laughs> I I sit in the legislature, and I, you know, 
when you, when you, I mean, it's ironic, right? He was everybody's like third or fourth choice. When you were the leader of a political party and you did not win under a system you're advocating for and you only won on the final ballot, I think it was the fifth one or something outrageous like that, you really should be championing proportional representation, not arguing you have the, the undivided support of your caucus when clearly you were very few, you were, I think he was third place on the first ballot. So, so that, that, that just doesn't hold water when you look at the, his, uh, that statement. Okay. Uh, one other question on this one. It sounds as if you actually will be campaigning on one of the options and not necessarily all three. Is that, is that am I right to that one? Um, for, no. The, the BC Green Party is, we formally registered as a, um, what, you know, this is my father, a third party or whatever it is. We, 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 we will be supporting, uh, actively supporting, a yes on proportional representation. We have come as a party to, to decide that we're not going to support any individual one over another. I okay. can tell you that my preference is not one with closed lists, but I don't know what other people view. And, and for us, what's important is that people actually, you know, they think about the bigger question, do you want to change or not? And then go into, if, if you don't care, leave it at that if you want to go into the the details have a look because some you know there and, and that's what i'm going to do is take a look at the three and but not advocate for one or the other i, I have my preference obviously but uh, i will mm. let others do what they want to do well one of the other things i think a lot of people are anticipating this fall is the rollout of the cannabis market the legal recreational market here in british columbia the model that we're going to have here in bc it's this hybrid retail uh, model with regards to both private and public sectors being involved is having the, I guess, former liquor distribution board involved with this as a bit of a middleman, is this the way that we should be going? What do you make of the current rollout as it stands right now? So, again, what we've been doing um, as a party and as a caucus, uh, Adam Olson uh, from Santa's Orkney Islands is our, our critic and spokesperson on, on um, uh, the cannabis file. What we've tried to do is ensure that craft cannabis producers here in British Columbia are protected. We know that there is already an existing industry. It's all under the table, obviously, but there is there are quite a number of people who are making this. You know, they're living doing that. So, so in that sense, if you look at what's happened in BC with craft beer, we've tried to tell, uh, to suggest to government that the model for distribution should mirror the craft beer model and and that supports you know, distributed local jobs uh, around our province protects existing industry. And and the distribution component of that, allowing, you know, the, a central distribution uh, component, which allows a certain uh, quality control, and I, I, I think that's the right way to do it. It retains uh, just it mirrors what we're doing with craft beer and allowing retail um, uh, distribution from independent sellers is also what we can uh, do with craft beer. I don't like, and I'm glad government isn't doing, is having cannabis uh, retail being sold in the same place as liquor. I think that's um, setting a, a dangerous signal. But um, So I, I've been relatively supportive with the way they've rolled it out. In, in the early going, do you expect that the government's going to be the first drug dealers to lose money? <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> I know that when you look south of the border, excuse me, to um, places like Colorado, um, the revenues that came in through the taxation were quite, um, quite large. So I would suggest that it'd be very difficult for the government to lose money on this, but you never know. And if they did, well, I'd be asking the question why. Well, but you know, the, the, the price point, the new taxes, the extra money for enforcement, the black market persisting the, as the well? The black market persisting, and yeah. black market is bound to respond to this. Um, I mean, 
are we doing this for uh, other than economic reasons, do you think? Well, we've been told as a province we have to do it, which is the federal government have, brought, have told us that by October it's going to be in place. So get, your, get your act together, provinces. So, so our, our, as, a, as an opposition party, and we, we gave our advice, and I, I mentioned it, is to mirror the craft beer model. That's been our advice to government, and government has listened to, to that advice and has put in place a model that we think actually allows for the protection of our craft industry. You know, I, I suggest that we, it may not be completely right off the bat, but, you know, I, I, I'm willing to give government an advance on this because it's, it's very complex to go from nothing to, and, and a complete black market to, uh, to uh, have government involved. Um, let's see, let's, you know, give them some time to see how this goes. You know, if it ends up like a gun registry, you know, boondoggle that we have federally, well, then we have can ask serious questions. If it ends up like a, you know, a, a, a pot of gold like they found in Colorado. Well, then, good for good, good for government. But good I, pun I there. Good early. pun. Nice pun. <laughs> that, that worked well. <laughs> I like that. Pot of gold. Yeah, I, I don't let's think not, we can, let's not get into the weeds. Yeah. Yeah, like, <laughs> well, we can't top that. So um, I, I'll leave it there with you, uh, Mr. Weaver. But I want to thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's BC Green Party leader Andrew Weaver, and that's it for BIV today. Thank you for listening. Make sure you tell your friends to subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't forget to leave a review, and be sure to find our stories in print and online at BIV.com. 